animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal, come here the animal, talking animal, talking animal. Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. And before we go any further, I want to thank all those folks who pledged in support of Talking Animals last Wednesday or before as part of WMNF's Summer Fun Drive, which just concluded earlier this morning. Traditionally, Summer Fun Drives can involve a struggle. People are traveling, busy with unusual routines, distracted, and so on. Indeed, this fun drive fell a bit short of our goal, so if you miss a chance to pledge or would like to pledge again, please visit WMNF.org and donate. Meanwhile, my guest today is Patrice Jones, co-founder of Vine Sanctuary. Vine is an acronym for Veganism is the Next Evolution. It's a 100-acre facility nestled into Springfield, Vermont, in a self-described LBGTQ-led farmed animal sanctuary. I wanted to spotlight Vine anew as an important part of our celebration of Pride Month. After all, Vine also calls itself a queer sort of sanctuary, and for sure, as you'll hear, Vine does things in a singular way as farmed animal sanctuaries go. Plus, I relish opportunities to talk with Jones, whom I first encountered at an animal rights conference in 2005, found her to be a riveting speaker, and invited her on the show for the first time back then. Sanctuary has since changed its name and location, while it continues to involve in all kinds of ways, including now offering a podcast called In Context, hosted by Jones. So we'll cover a number of aspects of Vine when I speak with Patrice Jones in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Also coming up later in today's program, I'll speak with Scott Trebatowski, director of Hillsborough County Pet Resources Center, one of several county animal shelters participating in the forthcoming Mega Adoption event, aptly named in that it features animals from those multiple shelters and it spans three days, June 23rd, 24th, and 25th at the Strawberry Festival Fairgrounds in Plant City. More on this later in today's show. Right now, though, let's discuss Vine Sanctuary with Patrice with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Patrice Jones, back on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Patrice. Good morning, Duncan. I'm always happy to talk with you. <laughs> okay. Well, that, that's that's very nice, and that does reflect... Well, I am, because your show is called Talking Animals, and all of the animals here at Pine Sanctuary are talking all the time, which always reminds us that humans can't possibly be the voice of the voiceless because animals have their own voice, and it's our job to listen to them. So I always love being on your show. Well, that's cool. Given the variety of animals there, what like today, this morning so far, I'm sure you've already been doing a lot of stuff with them before we even had a chance to talk. So, like, what are some ways that they've communicated with you in one way or another? Just pick two, maybe two, two or three uh, random animals there at the sanctuary, and what they've what they've communicated, what they've said. Uh, well, I uh, myself am at a part of the sanctuary where it's birds, um, and so I'm hearing crowing right now. Okay, as we are talking, 
And people make the mistake of thinking that roosters crow just first thing in the morning and they do it because they're an alarm clock of some kind. But in fact, crowing is a form of communication that evolved among jungle fowl of South Asia as the flocks forage through the forest and the dense foliage prevents them from seeing each other, roosters stay around the perimeter and crow back and forth to each other. So crowing means everything's okay over here, and then the other answers, everything's okay over here. Roosters have uh, two different kinds of alarm cries when everything is not okay. Uh, One actually sounds like the word hawk and is the signal that they've spotted an aerial predator. When hens and other roosters hear that sound, they all run for cover, uh, and they stay undercover while all the roosters raise the alarm, and they stay under the cover until the original rooster who raised the alarm crows, signaling that the danger has passed. Wow. I mean, that's... The other other signal is a signal for ground predator, um, and in that case, they all freeze and look around uh, and 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 then uh, stay where they are until somebody sets the all clear. And isn't that interesting that, at least with the aerial one, I don't know if it's true of the ground one, and you can explain in two seconds, that the only way the all clear is officially presented is by the original... Correct. Uh, yeah. Correct. And that's true for both. Okay, uh, it is true for both. Yes. So the, first, the person who raised the alarm initially has got to be the one who says, okay, all clear. Interesting. And then I did hear, I'm, I wasn't up at the part of the sanctuary where most of the mammals are, but I did hear a fair amount of mooing this morning. So I presume that that was Maisie, uh, who is a particularly bold elder cow, uh, telling the staff member uh, who was handling the chores up there that they weren't getting her special fortified grains to her fast enough <laughs> i see so she, what she was saying was step on it yep yep absolutely that's great well see just with an offhanded comment i think we've gotten into some very good really illuminating examples of talking animals mm-hmm. and so are you normally then mostly in the bird section or that just represents what part of the day this it is that i'm happy to speaking to you at the moment um well we have two uh we have two dwellings for humans at the sanctuary, we have two adjoining properties, and uh, one of them we call the valley, uh, and that's birds mostly, and that happens to be where I live. Um, and so I am mostly down here. I have to hike up a big hill to go to the other part of the sanctuary where the head of our animal care team lives. I got you. Okay, cool. So I noted in the introduction, the, the, the vine narrative is marked by kind of themes of evolution and change and, and others, as well as traits that make vine really distinctive in the annals of how formed animal sanctuaries are run. So in a moment, I want to discuss at least some of those facets uh, with you. But first, I'm wondering, to what extent do you think vine serves as a model or uh, should serve as a model for other farm sanctuaries or... In your view, is the combination of traits that help define vine, or are those also traits that make the sanctuary so almost like too novel to really be emulated by other farmed animal sanctuaries? Well, I think that every place is unique, and so every sanctuary is unique. Uh, that being said, there are there are two broad models uh, for farmed animal sanctuaries. Uh, the first 
uh, is the model that was started by Farm Sanctuary back in the late 1980s and is the predominant model for farmed animal sanctuaries where uh, the um, where animals and residents are thought of as ambassadors um, and members of the public are invited uh, to visit with the idea that uh, seeing farmed animals while hearing their stories will provoke them uh, to consider going vegan. Uh, And then uh, the other model is our model, uh, which is that we aim to be a multi-species community uh, in which uh, that is co-created by the animals uh, in sanctuary uh, and where self-determination and freedom um, are maximized, including respect for privacy. Um, and so uh, uh, visitors are kept to a minimum. Uh, in order to foster more self-determination and freedom uh, for the non-human community members. Uh, These uh, two broad models are not in um, uh, competition with each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there are many sanctuaries that sort of do a blend. uh, And we think that the important thing is for people who start sanctuaries to think a lot and carefully about how they're going to set things up, uh, whether they want to emulate the look of a farm or whether they want to do it uh, more queerly, as we do. Um, A simple thing is that many farmed animal sanctuaries will paint their barns red and they'll emulate the look of a traditional farm, whereas we have all of our structures painted in rainbow colors. Um, and no one's going to come here and think it's a farm. <laughs> um, and and uh, if, if people are interested, we're getting into the weeds here of, of, uh, of, of sanctuary work. If people are interested, we sponsored a uh, full month-long conference called Reimagining Sanctuary last year, and all of the videos are up on our YouTube channel. So you can watch uh, people talking about the ethics of sanctuary work, people talking about how sanctuary work intersects with other kinds of work, and uh, how sanctuaries can be communities and can build community in their local area. So I welcome people to go to the Vine Sanctuary YouTube page and tune in to that conference if you're interested yeah. in those details of sanctuary work. It sounds fascinating. One other thing, and we'll, we'll return from the weeds uh, presently, but um, but when you said when you were talking about the second broad model being your own, and you said it's multi-species and, and they sort of co-create mm-hmm. the sanctuary, can you talk a little bit more about how and, and in what ways they do co-create it? Sure. Um, well, we had... Uh, Last summer, we had a visiting scholar who was a graduate student in landscape architecture at Harvard, and she stayed for six weeks, and among the things she did was to map the sanctuary, uh, including uh, the pathways that are literally made by animals as they self-select their paths. 
Uh, and so it includes aerial footage. If people are interested in seeing this, they can visit the Vine website, go to Vine Book Club. Uh, we read her report for a part of the book club, and so there's a PDF uh, with, filled with maps and photographs and the like. Uh, so the broad answer to the question is that when we first started, we were a chicken sanctuary only, uh, and we decided that our motto would be let birds be birds, uh, that our goal would be to uh, create as close as we could to a habitat that would feel like the habitat their bodies wanted, and that we would understand that their most important relationships would be with each other, uh, that we would be extremely delighted if any bird wanted to be friends with us too, but we would make absolutely no effort uh, to acclimate them to humans or to tame them in any way. In fact, what we hoped that it would do would be rewild themselves after their intense captivity in factory farms. And can I just quickly, uh, sorry, uh, but just uh, because it may bring us back to another point, is that also in contrast to broad model number one of, of farm sanctuaries, what you just described about how the, the chickens were treated and not there weren't human relationships necessarily fostered with them? Again, if, if the chickens said, hey, I like Patrice and I want to hang out with Patrice, great. But there was no effort by Patrice to say, hey, you're a chicken, you're living here, you're hanging out with me because I, I would like to hang out with you. Well, I'm, I'm being careful here because I don't, I don't want to unnecessarily draw distinctions among sanctuaries. I think uh, uh, that I support all sanctuaries. We have our ways of doing things. Uh, uh, but I would say that, for example, many farmed animal sanctuaries still uh, keep chickens in um, fenced uh, yards that are quite clear of trees or brush or tall weeds um, because people have in their head that that's what a chicken yard is supposed to look like, a very neat and trim yeah. uh, area of mowed grass, but that's actually the opposite of what chickens want. What chickens want is weedy undergrowth and bushes and trees. Uh, so there are some distinct differences there, yes. And, and again, I didn't mean to suggest either I was putting forth any kind of criticism or that you were when you laid out the two broad models because they are broad and there is obviously probably more than a little overlap amongst the two, but there are some distinct differences. And one of the things that I think is interested that I think I said at the top of the show about Vine is, is some of those very distinctions and just ways that species are housed and, and not housed as opposed sure. to um, sure and 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 our our I think the key here and how this sort of relates to you bringing us on for pride is that we understood um, that relationships are central uh, to the um, lives of social animals all social animals and birds are social animals they flock together um, and what's What's important for them uh, is that they get to choose their own relationships, uh, and that's what we queer people want to. We want to we want to choose our own relationships, whether, rather than telling other people, uh, other people telling us uh, who, who we should be having our relationships with. Um, and so here, 
Another thing that's a little bit different is there's a fair amount of mixing among species because, yeah. well, we like to have friends of other species, and uh, and other species may as well. So we're not going to say, okay, goats over here and sheep over there and cows over there because maybe they want to be friends with each other. And guess what? Often they do. And is that was that a ma- early on at least, was that a matter of kind of trial and error where maybe it turns out in some cases either some species or just like all of us that can be grumpy or whatever, maybe some members of certain species right. uh, don't necessarily want to hang out with another species, but maybe right. other other members of that, that that exact same species do. But you right. could you could only find that out by sort of saying, "Hey, why don't you guys try this?" And the key is to offer choice. Yeah, in all in all, it's as much choice as possible, and we can't offer as much choice as we would like because we're here in this situation where all of the non-human members of our community are, are within the legal system considered our property. Um, we have to have fences because if the cows wander off into the woods, hunters might shoot them. And so we are um, captors as well as caretakers as much as we don't want to be. Yeah. Um, and so then the question for us becomes, how can we maximize uh, self-determination and freedom for our non-human community members uh, as much as possible within the reality of the current situation in the world and the physical limitations of the sanctuary? So, yes, of course, uh, we intervene. Uh, if there's a matter of health or safety, um, but we, uh, our our baseline is not the typical human assumption. Where, whereas, like humans know best, right? We know what's best for you because we're the smart humans. Our assumption is that if you're an adult animal, I mean, it's different for juveniles, of course. But if you're an adult animal and competent, if you're a competent adult then we presume you're competent to make your own decisions unless we have clear evidence otherwise. So instead of presuming that the human knows best, we presume that the animal um, himself or herself knows best unless we have clear, articulatable reasons for overruling their own decision. For example, a cow who has pneumonia doesn't want a shot, but we have information they don't have, which is that this penicillin will save their lives. And so in that case, we do feel free to overrule the cow who says, I don't want a shot, to in fact give them a shot of penicillin. But if that same cow is like, hey, I'm in this pasture, and I would prefer to be over in that pasture, and there's no real reason that he shouldn't be in that pasture, well, then we're going to open the gate. Yeah. and he makes his own choice. And that's great. And again, that might even be different three weeks from now. Maybe Correct. Maybe they'll say, you know what, I, I, I'm enjoying this, but I actually kind of... Oh, we have people who, right now, we have we have a giant back pasture, which is, I don't even know how many acres, forest, hills, um, and in spring through fall, the cows hardly ever even visit the barn. I yeah. mean, they can go to the barn any time, but they love to drink through the from the brook, sleep out under the stars, uh, and and then there's a uh, what we call the side pasture, also forested and hilly, but not quite as intense a terrain, and that's uh, uh, where. Uh, cows are a little bit less hardy, but not so impaired as to be 
needing to be in the special needs herd are. Um, and so we have these two large pastures, and there are many cows um, who, uh, over the course of the spring through fall, will spend a few weeks over here and then a few weeks over there. Uh, there's a cow called Maddox who uh, we were, three years after he came to us as a discarded calf, we were able to reunite him with his mother, Moxie. Oh, wow. Um, who has since passed on. Um, and so when she first came, they were together 24-7 for the first six months. Mm. Then he was like, hey, I kind of want to hang out with my friend. <laughs> uh, so then he went and hung out in the, in, the, um, in the pasture where he had been with his best friend, Equinox. And then for the remainder of her life, he just regularly went back and forth. He'd spend a few weeks with his mother. Then he'd go spend a few weeks with his best friend. A few weeks with his mother, a few weeks with his best friend. And we want people to be able to make those kinds of decisions for themselves. We won't overrule them unless we have a real reason to do so. And so, Patrice, how many, between staff folks and volunteer folks, how many people, because part, part of what's already becoming really clear is how, I mean, given the premise of what you've described about your model, it also seems like it involves people being super attentive, and there's a lot of attention that needs to be paid sometimes probably for a lot of any given day, just because that species or that particular animal may have changed where they'd like to be or what's going on just from yesterday when you last saw them. How many uh, fine sanctuary folks are there between a volunteer and staff? Um, uh, we, have a, we have a total of eight staff members, but one's um, uh, remote. So uh, seven staff members on site, and then another, let's just for on-site work, we have plenty of volunteers doing off-site things, mm -hmm. but I would say another three regular on-site volunteers. And so do, does everybody kind of continually throughout the day or at the end of a given day or whatever uh, communicate like what, what they saw out in that, partic that barn and what may have changed that uh, people should be alerted to in terms of uh, what may need to happen or where someone may want to go today that they didn't go yesterday? Yeah, I mean, it's not that, um, it's not, so yes, we, we, we have a staff Slack channel, yeah. um, and we also have walkie-talkies for immediate uh, communication because it's a large area. Uh, so if somebody notices something, uh, like today uh, I texted everybody that um, one rooster had moved from one yard to another yard. But generally, the communication goes on at, at the moment. Like, the cows know when we're going to be back there cleaning the barn, yeah. refilling the water troughs, putting out hay. And so somebody wants to switch yards, they'll just come to the gate while we're there. That's the opportunity that they know enough to know, like, hey, here's, here's where I can sort of switch uh, into the other Absolutely. barn. Yeah, that's great. This is Talking Animals. If you just tuned in, my guest is Patrice Jones, co-founder of Vine Sanctuary, located in Springfield, Vermont, and which describes itself as an LGBTQ-run farmed animal sanctuary. If you'd like to ask Patrice a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So late last night when I was preparing this, and, and again, I might have been a bit punchy when I got to this part, but I was just thinking... As we're talking about some of the things that, that make Vine different, and also, of course, your background as an accomplished writer and author, uh, I got to thinking, can a sanctuary have a point of view or develop a voice, as it were? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I'm happy to talk about that. But before I do, I just want to make sure so that I don't forget to say it while I'm on 
with you here today yeah. is that it is Pride Month, and one thing that we do every year is hold a Pride Month vegan challenge. Uh, and it's not too late to sign yourself or another person up to eat the rainbow for Pride Month. You can go to rainbowvegan.org and sign up or learn what you need to learn to challenge another person to sign up. Yeah, no, I was definitely going to get to that, but that's I'm glad we did just because, as at least in the past, when we get talking about things, uh, the conversation, to me at least, gets interesting and sort of veers off in interesting places. So, yeah, I'm glad, yeah, I'm glad I wanted, you hit that. I wanted to make sure that, that we did that. Yes, absolutely. Sanctuaries uh, have points of view uh, that uh, may or may not be explicit or conscious. And so one of the things that we really encourage people who are starting, uh, thinking about starting a sanctuary is to just be clear what your point of view is. Uh, and again, uh, you can think through some of the ethical issues by visiting um, uh, our YouTube channel and looking at the, the Reimagining Sanctuary conference videos. Uh, but certainly, sanctuaries absolutely have points of view. Ours has evolved. It began as a point of view that Miriam Jones, the co-founder of Vine and I, really thought about uh, when we decided uh, that uh, we would formalize the chicken rescue that we had already been doing and create a sanctuary. We thought really hard about what are our aims, what do we want to do, what is our ethos, what is our standpoint here, uh, uh, how are we going to talk about animals and the systems of oppression in which they are enmeshed. What are our aims going to be? And so um, what we think is important is for anybody who's doing really any kind of activism to get clear in your own mind, what is your standpoint? What do you, what do you think needs to change? How do you think it's going to change? Uh, how are the things that you are doing part of that big strategy for change, understanding that nobody can do all of the things. But what are the things that you're going to focus on, and, and, and what is it that you're assuming is true about people or about system um, that informs your... Uh-oh, we seem to have uh, lost uh, Patrice. We're going to get her right back, hopefully, on the line. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. We'll be right back, hopefully, with more Patrice Jones. From the Vine Sanctuary. Okay, Patrice has rejoined us. I don't know if that was one of those birds saying, uh, hey, get off the phone, or if there was some other reason that they... Uh... It could have been. I'm so sorry. I didn't. I kept talking uh, and didn't realize for quite a while uh, that you weren't there anymore, which is uh, not untypical for me. <laughs> well, so where were we? Well, I think we were talking about points of view and standpoints and how uh, that you encourage people when they're thinking about well, anything from starting a sanctuary to just taking a certain step uh, towards a particular kind of activism of asking themselves those kind of questions, what your standpoint, what, what needs to change, et cetera. So are, are there... Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, uh, and, and then, yeah, please continue in a sec. I'm just curious. Have there been a number of people over the years that have come to you and say, hey, we are thinking of starting a sanctuary. We love what you're doing here at Vine. What questions should we be asking ourselves? What should we do? What are our, some of our first steps? Have you gotten a fair amount of that? or? Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm sure. And we 
uh, as at this point one of the oldest and largest sanctuaries in the, in the country. Yeah. It's been around since 2000 now. Um, we consider it part of our job uh, to contribute to the community of sanctuaries. That's why we organized what was our second conference for sanctuaries, and we're planning to organize another one probably next year. And we do very frequently hear from other sanctuaries, whether well-established, very new, or prospective, and we're always happy uh, to weigh in and to make suggestions about uh, what kinds of things you should be thinking about uh, in order to get clear in your own mind what you're doing. But you, you mentioned the word uh, standpoint, and... Uh, which is a little bit different than point of, than viewpoint. Yeah. Uh, and and it brings us back to listening to animals because so everybody has a standpoint, meaning literally where you stand. Um, that includes your physical location. That includes your life history. That includes uh, all sorts of things about yourself. That's your standpoint. And and there are some things you can see from your standpoint. Uh, that maybe other people can't see, but there are also things that other people can see that you can't see because of your standpoint. So uh, both in terms of how you construct your organizations and in terms of listening to animals, it's super important to be clear what your own standpoint is and what the limitations of your own standpoint might be so that you can make sure that you are, if you're constructing an organization, having an organization in which lots of different standpoints are reflected. One of the things that's happened for us as we've grown is that people have joined the staff, have joined as volunteers. We will regularly launch brainstorming sessions to invite members of our broad community to help us think things through or make plans. And it's also important to understand that as a human, there are limitations to your viewpoint, things you literally cannot perceive. I mean, there are literally colors that birds can see that you can't see. Uh, pigeons can sense the magnetic field of the earth, but you can't. Yeah. Uh, so, so the other big question, sanctuary or other type of animal advocacy organization, the huge question we all have to ask is, what do non-human animals know that we don't know? What would they like us to be doing? How can we learn from them? How can we be better allies to them as they pursue their own liberation? Wow. And are the people that come to you considering seriously opening a sanctuary, are they surprised by the kind of questions that you raise for them to seriously ponder? Sure. Yeah. Well, I think people in general are, because here's the thing. Uh, just because you've gone vegan or decided to work for animal rights or decided to start a sanctuary doesn't mean that your deeply rooted human supremacy, sense, sense of human supremacy, your internalized speciesism has magically disappeared, right? You, you grew up as a human with in a world in which humans presume themselves to be superior, presume themselves to know better than other animals. Heck, we've named ourselves Homo sapien, the wise ape. We're seriously stuck on this idea that we're smarter than everybody else. It's absolutely not true. Uh, stuck on this idea that we absolutely know better. 
humans have a terrible habit of referring to um, adult animals as boys and girls and other and babies, uh, denigrating them. Not yeah. on purpose, but implicitly denigrating them down to the status of a juvenile. And, of course, adults know more than juveniles do. And so then this opens the door for you to make decisions for them and decide that you know better than they do. And not notice that actually they're the equivalent of your elder and they know more than you about some things. Yeah. So that can be uh, disorienting for people. And it's, it's, it's a challenge. I've, I've been mindfully trying to divest myself of my speciesism and sense of human supremacy for more than 20 years now, and I'm still not done. I'll still catch myself presuming that I know better than some animal, wow. presuming uh, something else. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a constant process, uh, and as far as I think that any of us who, whether it's, we're going to step up and, and, and care for survivors of the human war on animals, or we're going to advocate for other animals. We have an obligation to, to, to dial down the hubris and hero- heroicism uh, in order to really listen to uh, uh, animals themselves as, as entities who are seeking their own freedom, who have viewpoints, who have standpoints, who have knowledge. Um, and who have aspirations and wishes. And if we're doing things, quote, for the animals, aren't we obliged to take their wishes into account? Wow. Yeah, no, those are such important points. And, and the fact that 20 years later you're still saying you're struggling with a little bit with your own uh, speciesism or a sense of superiority, uh, given what you do day to day, speaks to how incredibly ingrained these things are. With, with most of us who probably aren't in a position to, to have that challenge day-to-day with 100 acres worth of animals that are great teachers in that regard. Right, and so when I'm, when I'm saying, look, examine your own speciesism, check your own speciesism, do you really want to call uh, somebody who is an elder a cute boy um, <laughs> or a sweet baby when, in fact, he's a bit cranky? <laughs> and older than you yeah just think about it i'm not putting anybody down i'm not saying oh you should have already thought about this i'm just saying hey this is something we need to think about every day for sure well patrice let me take a call because there's i think one caller who's called i think a couple times and and somehow left and come back so i want to put them on and see what they have to say and there's a few other things i want to be sure to address before we run out of time uh, not nearly as many things as i'd hoped as, as is often the case when we talk but but let's at least take this caller and see what they have to uh, add to the conversation hi you're on talking animals with patrice jones good morning duncan good morning patrice patrice i was wondering has your group done anything or are they planning to do anything about the plight of the horseshoe crabs oh i um i am so um, deeply disturbed uh, by what is has been done and continues to be done to horseshoe crabs. Uh, we are in really strong solidarity uh, with the organizations who are working on that. Um, it's not within our remit. Like literally, we don't have extra staff time uh, or or resources uh, to actively work on that question ourselves. But we absolutely are in solidarity with the organizations that are. 
We absolutely hope that not just in this instance, but in other instances, uh, those who are vegan um, and concerned for the plight of, of farmed animals understand um, uh, that vivisection and other uses of animals uh, in medical testing, etc., are equally worthy of our concern and to make sure you support the organizations that are doing that work. So, Patrice, the caller unfortunately dropped off the call. Could you, just for people listening who may not be uh, familiar with what, what he asked about and what you're describing now, could you just sort of briefly outline what the horseshoe crab situation is? The, the short answer is that horseshoe crab are exploited for their blood, uh, which is... Uh, which is unique due to their um, unique uh, uh, biological makeup and their extreme old age. I mean, they are, they are much older uh, than humans in terms of length of existence. So are, by the way, turkeys uh, and, and many other animals. Uh, they've been around create, co-creating uh, forests, co-creating habitats, uh, long before humans ever evolved. Uh, so that's back to they know things we don't know, right? Yeah. Um, but the situation for horseshoe crab, uh, the, um, who are like hooked up to machines with their blood being pulled from them, I, I don't want to be inaccurate in how I describe it, so I would just encourage people. Uh, it's been in the news lately again, and there are some people who are actively working on this uh, continuing and particularly horrific problem. So I would encourage you just to, to go to your search engine of choice and, and put in horseshoe crabs um, exploitation or horseshoe or even just horseshoe crab um, and news, and you'll see the details. Okay. You'll find ways to get hooked into that. All right. Well, so we're sort of nearing the end of our time, I'm sorry to say. So one thing we talked about and alluded to both so far but is it Vine is LGBTQ-run farmed animal sanctuary? So, uh, and I'm only being semi-dopey on purpose, but what exactly does that mean? Does this refer to you and the other leaders there, or is everyone working at Vine LGBTQ? Or? Uh, what, it, what, it, what it means is that, uh, is that Vine was founded uh, by LGBTQ people and the uh, preponderance of our staff and volunteers are... LGBTQ folk uh, from across the whole LGBTQIA asterisk spectrum. And as such, we have thought for a very long time about the intersections among queer and animal liberation, as well as the intersections uh, between uh, homophobia, transphobia, and speciesism, and uh, the ways that uh, these forms of oppression uh, support one another. All are, of course, rooted in this um, woeful human habit of seeing difference as um, uh, uh, bad, seeing people or entities who are different than you as, um, as, as therefore worse than you or lower than you or uh, less important than you. Uh, not a being able to recognize uh, difference as uh, good, not being able to recognize that people who are different than you 
uh, might be able to know things you don't know and contribute uh, to uh, problem solving in ways that you can't even imagine. So, um, uh, and then there are very, very specific ways, right, that, uh, that these different forms of oppression intersect. I think of, uh, uh, I think of all of the scientists who withheld evidence of same-sex uh, sexual relations and partnership and courtship and affection and parenting among non-human animals in order to prop up what we call heteronormativity, which is the false idea uh, that only heterosexuality is natural. And so uh, uh, the, the, the denial of the diversity of, of sexuality among non-human animals made it easier to uh, aggress LGBTQ people. Uh, most of us have been told it's not natural at some point or another uh, in our lives. But this also hurt other animals because if you see other animals as just um, reproducing automatons whose every decision and action is driven by the, um, the sort of robotic quest for reproduction, uh, then it's pretty easy to treat them like robots to put them in um, uh, vivisection cages or foie gras crates or subject them to the horrors uh, that horseshoe crabs are subjected to. Um, but if you recognize that non-human animals actually hook up just because they like each other, <laughs> become pair bonds due to affection. Imagine that. Uh, then you have to admit that they've got feelings and viewpoints and perspectives of their own, and it becomes much less ha much harder uh, to oppress them in those ways. So those yeah. are just a few yeah. of the, um, the intersections. We have a whole section on that on our website, which is vinesanctuary.org. For people who are tuning in live, we've got a roundtable of queer vegan activists coming up tonight at 7, um, and we'll probably be taping that, so you can keep an eye on our YouTube channel for when we post it. And uh, I know your listeners are in Florida, but we're also organizing Rainbow Palooza, the first ever combined Pride and Veg Fest. And that's happening on June 24th here in Vermont. And once we finish doing it, we're going to be so excited uh, to tell other organizations how they could do the same thing. Cool. Well, gosh, yeah, there's so many things I would have so loved to talk about, but I think we covered a lot of ground. And so this has been Patrice Jones, again, from Vine Sanctuary. The website is vinesanctuary.org. And again, that's one of the places you can find out, too, but it's not too late to get in on the Pride Month Vegan Challenge. And as you might imagine, there's a great podcast that she hosts called In Context. You can also find out about that and access that through the website. One more time, vinesanctuary.org. Patrice, thank you so much. We'll have to, uh, somehow I'm going to have to schedule more time or, or speak more frequently because I feel like there's a handful of things at least that we didn't get to, but I really enjoyed talking about what we did get to, and thank you so much for making the time to join us again on Talking Animals. Thanks for having me, Duncan. Thank you. 
In a moment, we'll talk with Scott Trebitoski, who leads Hillsborough County's Pet Resources Center, one of several county animal shelters providing adoptable animals to this mega adoption event happening June 23rd, 24th, and 25th at the Strawberry Festival Fairgrounds. Right now, though, we're going to step into the Comedy Corner with Aaron Foley and perhaps a relevant piece called Vegan Cooking for One in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. To travel, I, I get you know I get caught up on my reading because uh, I'm a huge nerd. I love the books. I love the books. Uh, I tell you, when you're in a bookstore, you start looking around. There's there's actually like a lot of depressing books out there, like <laughs> books on wars. I know depressing things are hilarious. <laughs> books on wars and plagues and poverty, hilarious. But then I discovered the most depressing book of all time. It's actually in the cooking section. It's called Vegan Cooking for One. <laughs> That's depressing. No meat, no fish, no dairy, no friends. Screw it, throw in the towel. The back of the book, it's like, if you love vegan cooking for one, you'll love The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. All right, that was Erin Foley. Today's comment corner of the piece called Vegan Cooking for One, taken from her album Lower the Bar. Right now, it's time to speak with Scott Trevitoski, director of Hillsborough County's Pet Resources Center, to fill us in on this mega adoption event happening later this month at Strawberry Festival Fairgrounds. This is Scott Trevitoski back on Talking Animals on WNO. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on uh, Talking Animals again. So let's get right into this. This seems, as I've noted earlier in the show, aptly titled. This is indeed a mega adoption event. Tell, tell me a little bit about how it came together and if there's any kind of history to it or what was the impetus for doing it this year. This is actually the uh, inaugural statewide adoption event okay. being held the same weekend. So throughout the state of Florida, Petco Love is sponsoring adoptions with the goal of adopting 5,000 animals uh, statewide. Locally, we got eight county shelters together and decided to have them all meet in one location. Um, The Humane Society is also participating, but they're participating from their own location. But at Strawberry Fest, we anticipate a minimum of 500 dogs to be available. Wow. Uh, from eight different counties, so there should be quite a selection of animals. And so I take it from what you said that this is specific to dogs, not cats, uh, this time around. Yes, this time around being the first one, um, there's some logistic issues with cats, so we decided to stick with dogs this time, but there are plenty of cats available at the shelter and at the Humane Society as well. Yeah, and so at the peak, it sounds like there'll be 500 dogs. In a gigantic event like this, I know it's the the inaugural one, but does it ever possibly reach the point of diminishing returns where there's almost maybe too many dogs at the location to be effective for carrying out adoptions, or is it going to be spread out enough where you feel like, hey, there's eight of us, you know, shelters here, that this will all work out? Uh, There's actually quite a bit of room. Um, We're in the ag building at the Strawberry Fest, and we feel there's plenty to spread them out. Um, When I used to work in Jacksonville, we had a mega adoption event at the uh, county fairgrounds, and we had over a 1,000 animals for adoption there. Um, It took us years to build up to that, and we're hoping that that will ultimately be what happens here, is that we grow to a 1,000-plus animals in the next two years or three years. 
Wow. So um, tell us also kind of what the specifics are. Like if someone comes there and there's obviously going to be quite a few dogs to uh, choose from, but they say, hey, you know what? I really made a connection with this one here. What's the procedure from there? What is the cost, et cetera, if they, if they find somebody they'd like to take home that very day? So each of the adoptions is going to be handled by the separate shelter and they're going to be divided that way. Sure. But that logistic is really not necessary to know. Just find somebody and they'll help you get the animal adopted. Okay. Um, there, we are waiving the adoption fee since it's uh, sponsored by Petco Love. Okay. Um, so this is a, a great opportunity to get that pet that matches your needs and then take that money that you normally would pay for an adoption and invest it back into the pet supplies, medical whatever you deem fit, but, it, you know, it's a good way to get started yeah. with no cost. That's great. So we should tell people again that this is Friday, June 23rd, Saturday, June 24th, and Sunday, June 25th. And so uh, it's pretty good hunks of each of those days. Friday the 23rd, it's noon to 6. Saturday the 24th, it's 9 a.m. to 6. And Sunday the 25th, it's 9 a.m. to noon. All taking place at Strawberry Festival Fairgrounds, which is 2508 West uh, Oak Avenue in Plant City. It's easy enough to search if you're not familiar with the location. But it sounds like you've been thinking, about, hey, it's time for us to adopt a, a dog. This is the place to be. Yeah, you definitely can't beat the selection. Yeah, that's great. Well, good luck, Scott. I hope I hope you guys reach the statewide goal of that five thousand adoptions, and I hope all five hundred dogs that are coming to the to the local one here uh, find homes. So, thank you so much for joining us again on Talking Animals. Thank you, Duncan. All right, we have just about reached the end of today's Talking Animals. I want to thank uh, someone else who pledged in support of Talking Animals, Teresa from Clearwater with a nice $50 pledge and uh, saying nice things about the show, including that uh, thanks for what you do and the interesting topics, guests that you share with radio. So thank you. Thank you for supporting. And again, you too can call 813-238-8001 and do a pledge, or you can do it online at WNF.org. So uh, up next, we've got a uh, we've got a special lecture that we're going to play. It's a speech uh, by Jeff Cohen called Break Up the Media Monopolies. After that, we shift back into music programming with Jim Bannon holding forth from 1 to 3, followed by Robin and Cassie from 3 to 6. Then a terrific block of Latin music kicks in. So that's it for this edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. We'll see you next Wednesday at 11 a.m. NPR News is next. Thanks.